Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What could go right? Who better to address some of the themes of this podcast than my next guest, Steven Pinker, who is the author most recently of Enlightenment Now, which spent many weeks on the bestseller list, which was a compendium of the data and trends that are showing all the ways in which at least the material conditions of human life both in the United States and globally, from poverty to violence to... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life expectancy to war to political stability on metric after metric after metric. All of these things have shown immense positive change over the past decades and continue to, even in a world where most people feel that the trajectory is in the other direction. 
Steven Pinker is currently a professor at Harvard University. He uh, is Canadian, grew up in Montreal and earned a BA from McGill and a PhD then at Harvard. Uh, he's taught at Stanford and MIT and began his career as a linguist, and a lot of his work grew out of his scientific work as a linguist. Before Enlightenment Now, he published an equally stirring book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, which was about the decline of violence. And in many ways, his current work, Enlightenment Now, is an expansion of and a continuation of the arguments made in The Better Angels of Our Nature. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and is a frequent and urgent voice about the degree to which we need to attend to the data and the information that suggests that the world that we are living in is at least in material terms a much more stable, affluent, progressive world than the worlds that we used to live in, even if we are focused daily on all the things that are going wrong. So let's have our conversation with Stephen Pinker. So on this podcast, we've we've talked a lot about why messages of the world not going to hell in a handbasket seem to have considerably less traction in the world that we're living in than messages to the contrary. And talking today with somebody who has thought long, hard, and deeply about these issues, um, it'll be interesting to hear Stephen Pinker's perspective on why we have come to this point and what we might do to emerge out of it. So, Stephen, on this general question of why is news about the world pointing in a dystopian, dysfunctional, dyspeptic direction, why does that have more credibility? Why does that have more traction? Why does that sink into our collective conscious, both in the United States and globally, more than the evidence that you have studied and published and thought about and manifested for years, why doesn't that rise to the top nearly as much as the other? A number of reasons. One of them is that we are psychologically attuned to the negative. There is a a widespread uh, cognitive bias uh, called negativity bias, where we dread losses more than we anticipate and enjoy gains. We dwell on uh, setbacks more than we savor successes. Uh, probably a, uh, an adaptation to the fact that so much more can go wrong than can go right in, in, in life. So, and, and the things that go wrong can do us a lot more harm than the things that go right can help us. So we're, we're tuned to the negative, and that creates a, a niche for professional doomsayers to remind us of uh, hazards that we may have overlooked. Um, so there, part of it is, is, is that uh, bad news capitalizes on this uh, bias toward the negative. Uh, a second reason is that there's, a, there's an asymmetry between uh, the, the nature of most positive uh, developments versus negative developments. Um, <clears throat> and negative things can happen uh, all at once in a big bang. There can be a terrorist attack, uh, an explosion, an invasion, a, uh, an industrial disaster. But um, good things aren't built in a day. They, there's, there's never a, uh, a sudden explosion of a, uh, of a, a food production or um, 
just overnight where uh, suddenly the world is much better off, um, whereas the world can get much worse off very quickly. And so if, if journalism is tuned to events rather than trends, then it will naturally tilt toward uh, the negative. It's easy to, easier to tear something down than to, to build it up. Uh, an example from the economist Max Roser is that if the, the, that the news could have run the headline, 137,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 25 years. But they never ran that headline because it never happened you know, on a Tuesday at 3 o'clock. And so more than a billion people escaped from extreme poverty over the last 25 years, and no one knows about it because it didn't happen all of a sudden. There are a couple of other reasons. One of them is that uh, the, um, there's also a certain moral and uh, reputational advantage that, that uh, the prophets of doom can uh, accumulate. They, they, they are seen as more uh, serious and engaged and concerned. Uh, a, a writer named Morgan Housel uh, said that optimists, uh, pessimists sound like they're trying to help you. Optimists sound like they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> and that, in turn, I think, comes from the, from, from the, the um, situation that uh, to criticize society is also tempting because it's a backhanded way of criticizing your rivals. Uh, society is, um, uh, has a, a number of elites, like academic, journalistic, religious, military, business, po uh, political, they're all kind of in competition as to who is, uh, has the moral high ground. And to say that society is screwed up, it's doomed, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a mess, is a kind of a way of saying that the other guys who are responsible for it are, uh, are, are, are less concerned than, than you are. Uh, and this, this has uh, been going on for centuries. Thomas Hobbes said that uh, Competition of praise inclineth to a reverence of antiquity, for men contend with the living, not with the dead. Right. Part of the explanation is that we become victims of our own success, and as we solve problems, we lower the bar as to what counts as a problem. We become less tolerant of human rights abuses in farther flung, flung parts of the globe, which we may not have cared about a couple of decades ago. Uh, we are concerned about forms of suffering and discrimination that would have been just off the radar until recently. Just one example is um, a few years ago, uh, Barack Obama gave a speech about the evils of bullying. Now, when I was a kid, bullying wasn't a, a, a problem. Bullying was part of childhood. But as our, our circle of empathy expands and we start to uh, care about the, the well-being of children, then uh, we uh, expand our scope of what counts as a, as a problem or an outrage. That's a good phrase. I haven't heard you use the circle of empathy. I mean, that's an interesting concept of sort of expanding expectations. Maybe we can pursue that a little more because there is this there is this issue as well of I've talked often about changing square footage of living space in the United States. So that a Levittown, which was the apex of a middle class sense of accomplishment in the 1950s, those prefab middle-class subdivision houses, the first set of them, averaged 800, maybe 900 square feet at most. And now, of course, the average living space is 2,100, 2,500, depending on whether or not you discount McMansions. But you can't tell people, oh, your life is so much better than your grandparents, right? Because we don't, we don't live in that sort of comparative time frame. We live with our set expectations, right? People always remember their highest income and their lowest costs. They don't remember the reverse. So what do you do about expectation resetting in light of 
what may be great evidence that on every metric that you've looked at, human life, expansion, war, violence, poverty, security, you name it, things have gotten better. But people don't live in a kind of generationally comparative time. They only live in their set point now. Uh, so, so true. As Franklin Pierce Adams put it, the best explanation for the good old days is a bad memory. Right. Uh, and that, that's not just the memory of an individual, but our, our cultural and collective memory. And, and I think it is a, um, it, it's a uh, shortcoming of typical punditry and commentary that, um, that there's an amnesia for even recent history. Uh, so with all of the economic strains that we're feeling now, and we obviously, there, there's no doubt that there are problems with our, the economy, but people forget that in the 70s there was double-digit inflation and double-digit unemployment, so-called misery index. They forget that there were people had to line up for gasoline, uh, that there, was a, there were fears that there wouldn't be enough uh, uh, fuel to heat homes through the winter. Um, and uh, those days of economic uh, high anxiety are kind of erased, and the past is, is uh, depicted in these golden hues as if it was a time of, uh, of, of comfort and contentment. Uh, it, it really wasn't. So there has to be, a comb- I think, in, in intellectual life, in, in common conversation, in, in journalism, more of an a, um, emphasis on, on uh, data and evidence, just the, the, the spread of numerate thinking, um, so that we no one's allowed to use the word more or less uh, or better or worse unless they can actually show that the, the data indicating that something has gotten better or worse and and a little more awareness of history and by history i don't mean you know thucydides or or, or the, the the american uh, revolution but just you know the 1980s the 1970s uh things that are within the lifetimes of some of the people uh listening but that are relevant to uh, claims that that uh, that situation has gotten worse it's interesting. You know, I have a friend who's just come out with a book called Squeezed, Alyssa Cord, who I may talk to on this as well. And she talks about professions like journalism and academia that used to be sort of solidly in the middle class. A lot of people in those, either because of the cost of health care or the cost of child care or the difficulty of obtaining it or the spread of adjuncts within academia, you name it, have become much more tenuous economically in the face of certain service necessities becoming more expensive. I mean, you and I have talked about, it's certainly true that most of life's material necessities are less expensive. Families spend less on food than they did in 1950, you name it. But things like healthcare, which is a service provision, right, which we have a very complicated system with, and childcare, those are challenging. So what, what does one say? You know, you can come at someone like that and say, well, look, on all these metrics, your life is quote unquote better. But they're sitting there going, no, my life is incredibly tenuous. How does that bridge get made? And I'm not saying this, you know, antagonistically to anything you're saying. I'm just saying, how do you, how do you engage that conversation? Yeah, it's, uh, it may be that some professions are more tenuous than, than they used to be. And um, we have to think about the, uh, at one level, we just got to think about the costs and benefits of a, say, in journalism, of the fact that... Uh, um, being a journalist is a uh, more tenuous occupation, but b- by certain criteria, a lot more people are journalists. I mean, if you look, if you, if you consider the amount of editorial commentary that we get on uh, blogs, uh, a lot of it very high in quality, 
there is a kind of improvement from the days in which you'd get you know three people staking out real estate on the New York Times op-ed page, and you'd see, you know, see each one of them twice or three times a week. The, the, the universe of discourse is much bigger, and that's bound to make the um, uh, employment prospects of any one of them um, uh, more tenuous, because not all of them are going to get full-time salaries. Uh, in terms of the individuals, there is some, uh, because of the long-term trends, like kind of the, the gigification of the economy, uh, more, more contract uh, workers, um, and um, the information economy, which kind of opens up the, the uh, arena to many more participants. There are changes that we haven't yet dealt with and that, that we really should deal with. In the, in the U.S., so many social services are provided by employers We've got kind of got a, a perverse welfare state where corporations and, and employers are uh, pr- provide social benefits like retirement and health care. Uh, the, the fact that that is less viable for so many professions probably means that the government is going to step in as it should step in the way it has in, in Europe. It's not an expansion of the welfare state. It's just getting corporations off the hook for being providers of social welfare. Uh, that isn't answering your question of what you tell those individuals, but um, the, uh, and there I don't have a clear answer, although probably data on how many hours you actually have free, what are the actual uh, goods in your life as opposed to dollars in your paycheck um, would perhaps ease some of the pain. As you mentioned, the fact that people are living in uh, larger quarters and in more desirable areas, many of the places that people live in and enjoy today, even if they pay high rents, uh, would have been unlivable in the 1970s in the era of, of high crime and urban rot. We've got to appreciate the positive parts of the package as well as the negative and try to um, uh, mitigate the negative parts. I mean, it may also be that you know, part of the response is that a generalizable trend or reality does not erase multiple specifics that, that may not be in sync with that, right? So you can say there is a general truth that doesn't apply precisely or exactly to every single person, but that the general truth is a story that we tell ourselves Oh, absolutely. that then shapes our kind of collective attitudes. You know, I've thought a lot about this in, and I wonder if, if you've, when you've looked back a little bit, um, it is true that there's a negativity bias. It's true that you can look throughout the past at the tendency of human beings to privilege the dystopian over the utopian or the negative over the positive. But in the United States, for instance, if you looked at headlines or magazine covers of Fortune and Time magazine throughout the 1950s, they were full of sort of euphoric promises of progress and the the future and the problems that were being solved and the human capacity that was being unlocked. I mean, is do you think these things are just cyclical? Is there is there something that gives rise to that versus this? Yeah, it's, a, it's a good question, and it's a real uh, demonstrable trend. Uh, I reproduce a graph in uh, Enlightenment now showing that an automated analysis of the uh, tone of the news in the New York Times and in other publications has, has been downward since the 1940s. There, there, there are ups and downs. As you say, there's some cyclicity, but that, that cyclicity is actually superimposed over a general downward trend. Um, now, and, and again, it's not that, uh, that objectively there are more bad things to, uh, to, to write about, but there is a, a change in the standards of uh, commentary and, and uh, journalism. Uh, and yeah, I can even remember as a child the kind of technologically driven optimism and, and optimism about a, 
uh, world order uh, embodied in the United Nations and its agencies like like UNICEF, um, that there was a certain amount of optimism that was shattered by by Vietnam, by Watergate, by uh, uh, stagflation. Uh, starting in, in the uh, 70s, there was a real downturn in uh, public expectations. Obviously, we, we don't want to be just put a smile on people's faces. We don't want people to be oblivious to problems. But on the other hand, if there is a, an across-the-board um, uh, cynicism, then that disempowers people from thinking that, 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 that the current problems can be solved or at least mitigated. Yeah, and, and, and certainly in Europe, they have their own generational shift of the euphoria of 1989 and the Berlin Wall coming down and then the formation of the EU in 91, 92 was really this period that if you talk to a lot of people in Western, Central Europe, England, there was a conviction of the future was sort of unfolding in this promised fashion of everybody was going to come together and prosperity was going to be increased. And within really a generation, right, that turned, if not completely, uh, substantially. Yes, although uh, we, well, we want to drill down into the demographics to see if it's really a generational change or if instead it's uh, actually the people who are felt kind of left behind by these changes that have mounted a, uh, a, a counterattack, that there was kind of nostalgia for some of the uh, illusory stability uh, before 1989 uh, among the older and whiter and uh, more rural generations. And that seems to be a bigger driver of European populism than, than the younger generation. I mean, the young, younger people tend to be more favorable to the EU in, in many European countries. That was certainly true in the, in the Brexit vote in the UK, right? I mean, the demographic divide between those who voted to remain and those who voted to leave was incredible in terms of massive percentages of people in their 20s and early 30s voted to stay and massive numbers of people over 50 or 55 voted to leave. Uh, true, or for Trump in the United States as well. But you're right, there, it's not clear how to uh, kind of fuse a kind of emotional and moral and spiritual energy with the real um, advances that are, are, are taking place. And it takes, uh, I think, a skilled politician, communicator, leader to generate that kind of, uh, of, of, of excitement, of animal spirits behind something that seems a little dirty, like reducing extreme poverty worldwide or reducing infant mortality. Uh, you know, Bill Gates has tried, but uh, and and but he is, you know, I think, by his own admission, kind of a you know a number cruncher, an effective altruist, uh, you know, sort of a calculating do-gooder. Uh, how to get a kind of Mother Teresa figure <laughs> or a uh, uh, someone who can generate that kind of excitement is uh, an ongoing challenge. There are some who done it, who, who have done it. Uh, Barack Obama and Emmanuel Macron and uh, Justin Trudeau have. Um, have in, infused some charisma into these kind of centrist, ameliorist uh, agendas, and we probably need more of that. It's an interesting question. I was going to ask you, actually, for a moment, if you don't mind, how you sort of evolved into this stage of your career work, right? Because you began very much as a scientist, as a linguist. That was what you did most of your work on for many, many years. So how did, what was your, what was your pathway into yeah, I studied for many years. I studied irregular verbs, uh, and uh, it was it was it was kind of data driven. I um, wrote a book on human nature called The Blank Slate, and I uh, in in talking about 
the what I argued was a, a real fact about the human condition, namely that we are products of evolution, that we did evolve with some rather uh, nasty traits like a desire for revenge and a desire for dominance, a uh, cognitive illusions that make us fool ourselves as to how uh, noble and righteous we are. Uh, does that imply, as many people fear, a kind of fatalistic view of, of uh, the human condition, that there's no hope for reform and improvement, uh, human nature is rotten to the core, and so we've just got to uh, uh, accept it. And, and for a long time, that's kind of motivated a conservative worldview, namely any hope for reform is naive. And I, I fended that off in the blank slate, noting that human nature uh, includes a number of components together with the, the nasty bits. We also have we have a sense of empathy, uh, a circle of empathy that can that is elastic, that can be expanded. That's a, a concept that I borrowed from the philosopher Peter Singer from his book, The Expanding Circle. We have a capacity for self-control, so we don't act on our uh, our, our vengeful uh, impulses. Uh, we we have language so that we can pool our expertise. And I noted just a, a couple of examples where uh, the, the conditions really had improved. So you can't have a debate as to whether change is possible or not, because uh, a simple glance at history tells you that change is possible. We abolished slavery. Uh, the Soviet empire fell. Uh, and I cited one empirical trend that I had stumbled across, namely that the British homicide rate had fallen by a factor of about 50 since the Middle Ages, a fact that very few people are aware of. Uh, and when I repeated these observations in a, a blog post, I then got uh, mail from uh, historians and political scientists and sociologists saying, you know, there are many more examples of declines of violence that you could have uh, written about as well, uh, that war deaths had been in free fall since, uh, uh, since the 1940s, that it wasn't just England where uh, murder rates had fallen, but every European country, that rates of child abuse were down, rates of, of domestic violence were down. And uh, it was all these data that um, kind of pushed me away from a somewhat dark view that I had in the blank slate of, of human nature and realized that the upside is bigger than most people uh, appreciate. And then enlightenment now came about when I had a similar epiphany, when I uh, came across data showing that it wasn't just violence that had been, been in decline globally, but also poverty and hunger and disease and illiteracy. And that there was a bigger story driven, driven by data, not by optimism in the sense of seeing the glass as half full, but just being aware of certain facts that the vast majority of people are unaware of. Uh, and, and so I wanted to put them between two covers and, and, and have a coherent narrative as to how this could have happened, uh, which I attributed to the, the ideals of the Enlightenment, namely that we can use knowledge and sympathy to improve the human condition. It's interesting to hear you describe your, your sort of intellectual pathway and that your passion for bringing to life the the data and information about the world getting better was born of early work that was acutely sensitive to the degree to which human beings can be create a world that is nasty, brutish, and short, or to borrow from Hobbes, or that, as you put it, the nasty bits, that there is a dark aspect of our of our wiring, of our nature, that has been ameliorated, but it also begins with a a much more complicated core, right? That that there is a messy mix of, of characteristics that human beings have. 
It's a, yes, and it points to a particular kind of political philosophy, the combination of an acknowledgement of the dark side of human nature with the possibility of human progress. Well, how do you reconcile those? And the answer is through, through human institutions and norms, things like liberal democracy, um, international organizations, rule of law, uh, science, uh, free press. Uh, that is, cre- creations by which we try to develop workarounds for the blind spots of human nature and um, leverage the, the cognitive and emotional faculties that we have to improve human well-being, despite the fact that human nature might always drag it back. It's interesting. I mean, I know you know well the work about the selfish gene, right? That there is. Mm-hmm. So how does that play into, because you could think about the present, both in the United States and globally, as an excess of or an efflorescence of, depending on whether you think it's positive or negative, of democracy, small d democracy, that everybody currently alive is merging into a state where they feel like their voice matters or should matter, and therefore their perspective analysis and beliefs should matter. That the institutions you talk about that were responsible for a lot of this amelioration, like all institutions, all norms, and all rules... They exclude some people just by by definition, right? You create a norm. There's a lot of people. Some people just aren't going to accord with that or don't want, don't want to listen to it. So I wonder to what degree some of what is going on is, yes, those institutions and those norms that were responsible for a lot of what you chart are no longer as acceptable because there's enough people for whom they were never acceptable or who feel oppressed by them or feel like, I want to make up my own norms. Yeah, I mean, and there are certain kind of built-in contradictions in the idea of democracy, noted since the time of Plato, at least, um, that uh, on the one hand, you don't, uh, giving power to the people is not necessarily a recipe for uh, human improvement. There's a kind of anarchist, libertarian characterization of democracy as uh, two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> That, and, and that's, of course, why democracy has to be fused with <clears throat> declarations of, of inalienable rights, of, of bills of rights that kind of draw, draw a red line of what uh, a democracy, uh, with all of its power, just cannot do, is not allowed to do. Uh, so that's one, one of the tensions. <clears throat> Another one is that um, the problem with uh, democracy is, uh, the, uh, as H.L. Mencken put it, it's the idea that people know, know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. Uh, that uh, uh, most, the vast majority of people are almost comically uninformed about uh, the issues of the day, about how government works, about how any of the, uh, you know, what the realities are of the uh, of various policy proposals. Most people can't name more than one or two Supreme Court justices. They don't know how many branches of government there are. They don't know who we fought in World War II. And uh, they're, they're determining how to run the country. So uh, on the one hand, we can't have philosopher kings, just you know, technocratic experts. Uh, on the other hand, this is almost, it's almost a taboo against pointing this out. Uh, you know, mo- most people really are, are not equipped to make decisions about how society ought to be run. And so we kind of, democracy has to muddle through this contradiction and have a, uh, some degree of insulation from the, the, the passions of the day and the, the, the uh, prejudices and uh, of, of uninformed people, uh, while at the same time not acting uh, against their interests in cons- ruling with the consent of the governed. It's always going to be messy and imperfect, uh, and I think part of the 
getting people to appreciate democracy is to appreciate that this messiness is not a um, a breakdown in the system, but it's uh, inherent to the system. That democracy has always been uh, messy and 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 ugly and involving you know, kludgy compromises, and uh, it's just impossible for ever for it ever to work uh, as smoothly as the idealizations would have them. Yeah, I mean, you, you can certainly point out within American history alone, right, no matter how partisan Congress is now, no one is walking into the chamber with a cane and nearly beating to, <laughs> to death another representative, as happened on the eve of the Civil War. Although you are left with this weird reality globally right now, which is you have, as you put it, the libertarian anarchic tendencies of American democracy on the one hand, and then you do sort of have a philosopher king technocratic elite model in China, which is highly autocratic and deeply not representative, but does sort of follow the mode of Western philosophy of the people who are most educated, most skilled, most able to sort of the elite who who care for society. And increasingly around the world, right, the China model has a great deal of appeal. And the American Western European liberal democracy model seems to have less. Well, it's it's not clear. It's not as if the Western Europe is any country has adopted the Chinese model no. of uh, you know, kind of a ruthless meritocracy, uh, or at least what they think of as a meritocracy. Uh, the they kind of nationalist populism is, is somewhat distinct from from Chinese technocracy. Oh. Totally. There is something of a fading of the enthusiasm for liberal democracy, which I, I think is a, a real problem that uh, we fans of liberal democracy ought to, 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 to try to, uh, to, to remedy. And, and some politicians have. Um, on the other hand, we, we shouldn't, uh, again, be too nostalgic for earlier times in, in measures of how many democracies and, and autocracies uh, the world has. They differ somewhat, and, and some of them show a bit of a recession. But uh, we're, the world is far, vastly more democratic than it was a couple of decades ago, uh, no matter how you count. I mean, people forget that uh, not so long ago, Spain and Portugal were literally fascist dictatorships. Not fascism in the sense of the, uh, the you know, nasty insult that you call people you don't like, but they really were fascists. Yeah. Uh, Greece was under the control of a military junta. Most of Latin America, most of, uh, of, of Asia, uh, Eastern Asia, South Korea, Taiwan, um, and uh, all democratic now. Uh, there are a lot of there are a bunch of democracies in, in Africa that, that work halfway decently, um, and uh, to say nothing of half of Europe being behind the Iron Curtain. So, for all of the, the recession of democracy, the world is still a lot more democratic than it used to be. And even and even the autocracies. I mean, China being a really good example, right? It it may be autocratic and it may be controlled by a domineering party that calls itself communist, but it's a whole lot less violent and less physically repressive than it was at any point from the late 1940s until the mid to late 1970s. Absolutely, yeah, and that that's something that people also tend to to forget that Mao had his his. Uh, uh, vicious, harebrained schemes like the Great Great Leap Forward that resulted in the deaths of literally tens of millions starving to death. And he was quite explicit that he didn't care. You know, China's such a big country, we can afford to, to, to lose millions of people. What difference does it make? For all its, its brutality, the current Chinese regime does consider the well-being of its people as uh, on, on its list, economic well-being. And, of course, they've embraced some enlightenment institutions like markets. 
Um, so it's clearly not <laughs> nowhere near a, a democracy, a liberal democracy, but there is more concern with the well-being of citizens than, than in uh, just a few decades ago. And, and I'm wondering again about this sort of disjuncture between individual experience and collective information or between anecdotes and data. And think about the incredibly heated, deeply problematic issue of police violence in the United States, particularly toward African-Americans. Many people would say, look, on, on most reportable statistics, it would seem that there may in fact be much less of this and that we pay attention to the egregious violations of norms and, and good behavior. But then you have the ability of cell phones and body cameras to capture every bit of information about every single experience. And back to your point of no one reports that 137,000 people were pulled out of poverty or starvation. Um, nobody says, you know, there were 27,000 police civilian interactions yesterday, uh, and none of them resulted in a civil rights infraction. Right. No, I think it's, 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 it, there is, I think, uh, a kind of journalistic malpractice in the reporting of, of police shootings. Um, first of all, as, as you point out, it's, uh, they're almost certainly in decline, although they're, they're not accurate counts. But, you know, in the, in the 60s, in those urban, urban riots in Detroit and Watts and Newark, uh, police would shoot African-Americans you know, ten, uh, a dozen a night, and uh, it was just considered a you know, normal part of, uh, of what happens in a, in a uh, riot. Uh, uh, the fact that the crime rate is down so dramatically uh, almost guarantees that violent encounters with the police are down. And as uh, a number of analyses have, uh, have uh, shown, there, it's not clear that there's any racial bias in police shootings other than the fact that um, many um, minority neighborhoods have higher rates of crime in the first place. But if holding constant the number of encounters of different races, there's very little evidence that there is a, a racial effect. Uh, American police shoot too many people, that's for sure. But uh, it, it doesn't seem to be a racial issue. And the fact that that has been submerged in a lot of the coverage, so most, I, I, I suspect most people think that, that um, police shootings have increased and that they disproportionately target um, um, minority uh, men, has led to a kind of retreat of policing that may be part of the explanation for why after falling for 22 years, the uh, homicide rate has increased in the, each of the last two years, uh, exactly when the um, uh, publicity about the Ferguson shootings um, became common knowledge. Uh, so we may have had actually an increase in the number of uh, African Americans being victims of, of violent death because of an incomplete reaction to the phenomenon of police shootings. But so all this is not to say that, that obviously we should be oblivious to the, uh, the fact that police shoot far too many people of, of all races, but that a little bit more numeracy in reporting uh, and a little bit more history could change the picture in a way that, that might result in, in lives being saved. Or one could do a better job sort of framing the problem, which is a different way of saying what you just said, insofar as one could say, look, any racially motivated police brutality that is either excused or systemic in local areas is unacceptable in a society that calls itself, you know, liberal, open, and democratic. But we still can note that we have, over time, reduced or at least tried to limit the scope of that and have, have it become increasingly less acceptable. A lot of people will argue with that. I know this is a highly charged topic about 
you know, what does one feel about the current administration and whether or not these things are apologized or not. And obviously, you know, our society, like many societies, deals with generations of racial divide and and longstanding issues from slavery onward. But you could, as you say, put these things in a context of both numeracy and and change over time while simultaneously having zero acceptance for any of it in the present. Absolutely. I mean, there's just no question that, that American police shoot too many people. Um, but, and, but one has to diagnose the problem accurately in order to address it. And, and as you say, the fact that it is now a uh, subject of, of moral concern is itself an advance. You know, I, I'm, I'm, there's no question that it's a good thing that we're worrying about this problem. Right. Now. And in, in our own history, I mean, back to the euphoria of the 1950s that we had solved everything, at some point in the early 1960s, a bunch of people woke up and went, wow, there's still a lot of poor people in the United States, hence the war on poverty and Johnson's Great Society programs. And whether this failed or not, it was a collective awareness of that this kind of dream of middle-class prosperity was not extending to as many people as it should in an affluent society. And I think the hope of a lot of people today is to say, look, yes, we've made great progress on a wide swath of issues that have have challenged human beings from time immemorial. But insofar as that envelope, whether it's a circle of empathy or a circle of affluence, doesn't include all of us or nearly all of us, that means that whatever work we have to do is presumably incomplete. Uh, absolutely. But flip side of that, though, is that, there, that we have to acknowledge the successes that, that have taken place. And in fact, the poverty rate uh, after government taxes and transfers, uh, has fallen dramatically since the 1960s. Now, this is not a um, denial of the problem of poverty. Quite the contrary, it's an acknowledgement of how we can attack it. The vast consensus among American conservatives is that the war on poverty was an abject failure. It made everything worse. Uh, It's a lesson that we should not have government uh, trying to solve problems of poverty. And that just is factually false. Uh, there was a, a lot that went wrong with the war on poverty, but by and large, expansion of, of Social Security, of earned income tax credit, of a number of other uh, programs, uh, have been successes. And the fact that no one is willing to point out that it's a success opens the field to the f- hardest right of the right, saying that the government should just get out of the business of worrying about poverty. So acknowledging the, the progress that we've made, I think, is essential to uh, continuing the progress. Interesting. You know, there is, as, as we finish up, a... Um some recent work that as unions have decreased in strength and numbers in the United States, municipalities, by raising minimum wages, have begun to sort of take the place of collective, if not collective bargaining, then sort of collective efforts to make sure that these these moves continue. So it's just one one way in which government, whether local, state, or federal, can continue to play some sort of constructive role, at least in, in so far as we can see. So I am sure you will continue to have these debates and these arguments. Um, clearly, you've touched a good chord. In the world that we're living in right now, trying to point out the ways in which, on multiple levels, the human condition has improved materially and otherwise, is oddly enough a discordant note, right? It used to be that saying, hey, wait a minute, look at all the problems was the discordant note. Today, saying, hey, wait a minute, look at all the, if not successes, then the the trends that are heading in the direction we would all want them to, somehow that strikes a sour note. In fact, you and I have talked about it's incredible how many people get really angry when you say, look, we have lots of problems, but we've also done a huge amount collectively to address those problems. And 
you know, that that is indicative of the world that we are in. But I do hope that your voice uh, does not remain a lone voice crying in the wilderness. <laughs> You've got the hair for it, at least. <laughs> at the very least. So I'm sure we will uh, we will keep hearing from you, and, and I hope that we do keep hearing from you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today.